0: Welcome to Mansplaining, a podcast about the interesting things you can discover if you just take the time to learn. I'm your host this week. My name is Joe. And as always, I'm joined by my college friend, Mark. Together, we'll explore what's on our minds and hopefully figure out a thing or two about a thing or two. Mark, we are taping this episode in the middle of June 2022, it's the beginning of vacation season. And at this time of year, I think back to my favorite family vacation, which is my family's drive out west and trip to a bunch of national parks, including Yellowstone, mm. uh, which is one of the most amazing places you'll ever see, probably my favorite vacation of my entire life. And I can't help but be distressed, extremely distressed by the news this week I'm not sure if you heard about this, but there's such bad flooding in the northern part of Yellowstone Park that it appears likely the park is going to be shut down for the entire year. I mean, it might open by Halloween if they're lucky. And I think it's a combination of Flash floods, one of these thousand-year storms that comes every five years these days, and the snow melt on the mountains has just made it an untenable situation. And a lot of places that I visited when I was at Yellowstone are underwater now, or have access roads completely ruined. And I just wonder what—if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, it's really uh, extremely upsetting to me because. I think Yellowstone is a public treasure that we should all have access to.
1: I've only been there once. The summer before my senior year in high school, my mother, sister, and I got into a car and drove across the country from Oregon to New York City and back again. And one of our stop offs was in Yellowstone. And yeah. I still have some pretty vivid memories of. Just the amazing geological uh, formations there, the geysers, of course, which are famous, and the the animal life. And yes. just how – like this amazing attraction that is nothing but natural phenomena, but fascinating natural phenomena and beautiful landscape. And I it is sad that it's closed. Yes. I hope that if it is closed for an entire year, this could be kind of a year of healing because I have heard that Yellowstone has been under some stresses lately in terms of just the sheer number of tourists there. So it could be good in the long run. I'm going to put a pot optimistic spin on this hmm. that this is it's like a sabbatical year for Yellowstone for <laughs> for the park to get back to its roots and really think about what's important.
0: Yeah, well let's hope that the, you know, I like that spin on it and let's hope what you say proves to be correct cuz I just the geysers are not open to people right now and I think as the country gets past the COVID pandemic, this is a banner year to do things like travel to national parks, so it really bothers me that that park is inaccessible this year. But speaking about COVID dislocations, that's a nice segue to our topic for today, which was really inspired by my getting back into the office after a two-year absence due to COVID. And noticing how much of the immediate neighborhood around my office in Midtown Manhattan had changed. You know, closed stores, closed restaurants, a lot of shuttered buildings that are still that way now, despite the fact that life is beginning to bubble back in New York. And that got me thinking of the larger issue that I had heard mentioned in some places in the media about whether cities are resilient enough to withstand the ravages of COVID, given all the economic dislocation, the money that has not been coming in for the last few years to starved municipalities that are hurting for money even in the best of times. So I put the question to you, Mark, are our cities in trouble? What's the immediate prognosis for how cities can recover from the pandemic. So what did you find?
1: Well, as always, thank you for the question. I think this is something we're all wondering about. Assuming that this pandemic will someday come to an end, what's going to happen next? Are we going to go back to the way things were, or will the world be a fundamentally different place going forward? So this is a very interesting topic to dig into. The COVID-19 pandemic was a huge shock to the world's economy it triggered a global recession that was the deepest since the end of World War II. When the pandemic was at its worst, many of us converted to working from home and meeting via Zoom and WebEx. Tens of millions of people across the country who had been commuting into work, getting lunch at the restaurant down the street, and maybe meeting for drinks or doing a bit of shopping before they went home, all suddenly stopped doing those things. Right. Tourists canceled their plans, restaurants closed transit ridership fell way off and local tax revenues cratered. As a result, lots of small businesses went under, while many of the ones that survived were saddled with the debts that they're now struggling to pay off. In March of 2020, for instance, 22 million people lost their jobs, most of whom were poorly paid to begin with. Of these lost jobs, nearly 19 million were in the service industry. The largest job loss was in leisure and hospitality, which includes restaurants where 8 million jobs were lost. Wow. So far, only 6.5 million of those jobs have been regained. Arts and entertainment was a sector that was also hard hit, and is still 13% or more than 300,000 jobs below pre-pandemic levels. And Joe, you have witnessed the effects of this to a greater extent than I have, because New York City suffered deeper job losses as a share of its workforce than any other big American city. Hmm. Before the pandemic, about half of the New York City workforce was employed by those small businesses that were most challenged by the pandemic. And as the pandemic has waned, the rate of job recovery in New York City has been slower than in the rest of the country. New York's restaurant jobs, for instance, are still 26% below pre-pandemic levels. So your hometown had it worst, but COVID knocked many cities sideways and forced businesses and local governments to make changes. Historically, this is far from the first pandemic to have done so. Central Park in New York City, for instance, was established as the nation's first public park in response to waves of cholera epidemics in the 1850s. You could get fresh air and water in the park, both of which were thought to be remedies for the disease. Other pandemics similarly encouraged cities to rethink their urban planning. And today, according to one survey, 68% of cities are reconsidering their use of public space— and urban planning as a direct result of the pandemic, while 54% are rethinking mobility and transportation. The changes to major cities could be significant and long-lasting. One set of companies that did great business during COVID were the ones like Zoom and Amazon, who make it possible to do almost everything online. Right. One specific impact of this is something called warehouse sprawl, in which big metropolitan areas have come to be ringed with large fulfillment centers, while micro fulfillment centers have taken over vacant storefronts to make good on the promise of same-day delivery. Meanwhile, the jobs that were converted to work from home during the pandemic may not ever return to the office. As you know, Joe, I'm interviewing for jobs right now. Yes. And one of the big changes I've seen in the job market is lots of roles are designated as either remote or hybrid. That is, Remote meaning you could work from home all the time, and hybrid meaning you might come into the office two or three days per week. Last year, economists at our alma mater, the University of Chicago, estimated that 37% of jobs could be permanently performed from home.
0: Ah, interesting.
1: Yeah. This number varies by industry, of course. At the high end, you have fields like finance or insurance, where it's estimated that more than three-fourths of jobs could be fully remote. Well, at the low end, you have accommodation and food service, where less than 10% of jobs could be done from home. Right. I've interviewed with companies that closed their offices during the pandemic, and for now at least, many companies do not intend to go back to spending lots of the revenue on office space in expensive cities like San Francisco, Manhattan, and Seattle. In going fully remote, a company gains the opportunity to recruit new employees from anywhere in the country. For a small tech company that might have struggled to attract top talent in the Bay Area or Brooklyn when they were drawing on the same talent pool as bigger and better-known companies, that could be a boon. Now, time will tell if that intention holds up. There are certain parts of working together that are not as easy over Zoom, and there are a lot of managers out there who like to keep a very close eye on their employees. And personally, I will not be surprised if many of these remote or hybrid roles flip back in the years to come, to the expectation that everyone should work out of an office. But for the time being, at least, it is certainly a possibility that work from home will be, for many people, an ongoing scenario rather than a temporary safety measure.
0: Yeah, it also changes the default setting for work in general. I mean, I can only explain this by giving you an anecdote that I myself recently hired an employee to replace a longtime employee who had retired and i actually got a couple of resumes from people who live in florida and california yeah and i thought to myself how the heck do you think you can do this job in new york city from florida and california you know and the, and the interesting thing was these people didn't even inquire about whether the job was all remote they apparently just assumed it was yeah so i think there's been a change in in, in thinking you know
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent. And you know, I can speak as someone who's applying for those roles. I don't think I don't think I applied for your job. So I'm not one of the people okay. you're wondering about.
0: I would have rejected you <laughs> immediately, so and I'd remember that.
1: Which is why I didn't apply, Joe.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> they well they are probably like me seeing a lot of jobs just as defined as remote or remote optional. Mm. And then um a lot of the time, you know, just to be honest, uh, you apply for a job to see if you're going to get a response. You apply for a job thinking, "Yeah, I'm probably not going to get this, but what the hell do I know? Maybe they think I'm going to be awesome." So it may be that even they were wondering if the job could be done remotely and figured you would be the one who would tell them. And you know, in the answer, the answer in this case was no. Right. And so you know, fair play, but they were open to the possibility that maybe this is something where you would just meet up over Zoom or WebEx. Yes. But if people are working from home on a permanent basis, that could have massive second order effects on cities, businesses, and tax revenues because it would mean fewer people commuting into major city centers five days per week.
0: And that's exactly the reason why all these local restaurants and shops have closed. I think it's exactly for what you just said.
1: It could be. But let's look a little closer because one factor that's often Mm -hmm. overlooked in the popular media when addressing this topic is the fact that the economic impact of these changes depends on where the workers live and where their jobs are. Workers who commuted to their job before the pandemic may no longer do so, because they're now working remotely, and that would result in a loss of demand for goods and services provided by businesses in the city. But on the other side of the coin, there are workers who live in the city but used to commute out of it to their jobs. Some of these people will now stay home, and that would be a net benefit to businesses in the city. There are definitely more people who commute into big cities than out of them, but the difference is not huge. Uh, For instance, in Philadelphia, 34% of city workers commute in from other communities, while 25% of working Philadelphians commute out of the city. Hmm. So the economic effects of remote working on the economy of big cities is real, but it might not be as big as some people are imagining. The bigger problems might be that residents of large cities are thinking about moving, one survey of workers in 10 large cities in North America, Europe, and Asia showed that 33% of residents would consider moving if they had the opportunity to work remotely, and 70% of those would choose to relocate to less populous areas, either to a smaller city or to a suburb. I know I've thought about it. Rents in Seattle are growing rapidly, as we have covered on this podcast before, and the median price of a home here just passed $1 million. $1 million. If I had the opportunity to make roughly the same amount of money but live in a community where a dollar goes farther, that actually sounds pretty good. We'd lose the benefits of living in the heart of Seattle, but our overall standard of living might actually be higher.
0: I also wonder about this question, the big question, will people leave cities if they don't have to work in offices in cities? And I think one of the sub-questions involved here is why? If they do leave, why would they leave? And I think you've concluded that the reason they would leave is because it's too expensive to live in the city. And thats uh, I have a little bit of anecdotal evidence of people I know who've moved out of the city, and that's precisely why they've moved out. Mm -hmm. Not because they want to leave the city, They actually love living in the city, but it's so damn expensive that, uh, give you know, with the opportunity to work remotely, they could save tons of money by leaving the city. So some have moved back in with their parents. Wow. And others have gotten cheaper apartments, uh, in the suburbs or exurbs. Yeah. And I think that is a real trend. But I, I, I mentioned this. Only because I think I want to dispel any notion that people are dying to get out of cities, and this is their this is their chance, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's more economic imperatives than uh, rejection of urban life. W- would you agree?
1: I I feel like cost of living is a primary issue. I think also there are parents, uh, maybe when they're considering building a family, who. Like the idea of having a house with a backyard, and you, you can't do that in Midtown Manhattan. You can't do it in Brooklyn. You can't do it in Seattle either. Right. Really, uh, though, there are some neighborhoods where you can have a backyard. You're you're that raises the price of your home from a million to a million five.
0: <laughs> right,
1: um, and if you're thinking like when I grew up, uh, had two story house, huge backyard. I walked to school. There was there were two big baseball. But, uh, baseball diamonds next to my school where I would play with my friends. It was a completely different world that I grew up in. If I had young children and if I were thinking I want the childhood that I had for them, then I wouldn't be able to do it in Seattle. We would have to think about doing it in a different city. So there's another phenomenon that is coming into play in this situation besides what we've already discussed, and it's called social scarring. Social scarring is the behavioral residue that's left over after we've all spent two years avoiding certain scenarios that were widely considered to be dangerous. For instance, gathering indoors with a lot of people we don't know personally. As the pandemic runs its course and the threat of death or serious disease wanes, many people remain reluctant to engage in the activities that they've been avoiding, even if there's less of a public health reason for them to do so. And again, I can speak to this personally. Uh, we ate at a restaurant last night, but the only restaurants that we considered were the ones that had patio seating. I still feel reluctance to eat at a restaurant indoors, even though it's not really all that dangerous anymore. It just doesn't feel right after two years of avoiding those situations. Yeah. That is social scarring.
0: And fear is at the center of that, right? Fear of the unknown.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Fear combined with a habit of being cautious. In short, the effects of the pandemic on social and economic activity could last much longer than the pandemic itself. As a result of these and other factors, data shows that economic activity has spread outward from city centers. The magazine The Economist compares it to an egg broken into a pan. Suburbs and the less glamorous sections of cities are soaking up some of the economic activity that used to take place downtown. The CEO, Shake Shack, for instance, stated on a recent earnings call that their focus in the coming year would be, quote, predominantly suburban shacks, unquote. So where does that leave city centers? First, there could be less demand for office space over the longer term, and landlords hoping that their tenants will return to the office might be waiting for a long time. Some researchers expect surplus office space to stand idle for so long that it will eventually be converted to residential use. Fewer office workers means fewer businesses supporting those workers, so some of the restaurants and retail shops that depended on the workday crowd are probably never coming back. We would also see reduced demand for public transit. All of this would result in less employment for lower-wage workers, such as baristas, cleaning staff, waiters, and taxi drivers. Some people worry that this will put cities into a bad place with regard to tax revenue. Revenue sources vary from place to place, but on average, 61% of state and local revenue comes from property tax, 16% from sales tax, and 7% from income tax. The other 16% comes from miscellaneous sources, like alcoholic beverage licenses and those annoying fees you have to pay on rental cars and Airbnb rentals. Some experts are warning that many of these revenue sources could be vulnerable going forward. Workers who move out of the city take their income with them, and sales tax is lost on goods that aren't purchased in local shops and restaurants. Yes. Commercial real estate could take a hit if there are fewer businesses looking to open a storefront, possibly lowering property tax over the long run. And a few experts are telling scary stories about how a loss of revenue would result in governments cutting services and laying off cops, which could make crime and homelessness explode, which would make life in the city less appealing and lead to a further loss of revenue they say that it's, quote, the 1970s all over again, unquote. And that is a scary picture of the future, but is it accurate? Many cities are actually reporting a big rebound in tax revenue this year after losses the past two years, so much so that some politicians are already talking about tax cuts. Partly, this was driven by a shift in consumer spending. Instead of spending on services, which are often tax-exempt, Americans have been spending their money on goods, resulting in a surge of sales tax revenue, especially given the inflated prices we've all been seeing lately. The state of Washington reported that sales tax revenue in 2021 was 33% higher than in the previous year. It turns out when people were stuck at home, they spent more time on certain activities, notoriously making sourdough bread, watching shows on streaming services, and buying stuff online. And so Miami is reporting a $140 million surplus, and in 2021, local sales tax in the state of New York grew by 19%, and is now above pre-pandemic levels. Mayors in some cities, aware of the direction the wind is blowing, are reportedly shifting focus away from trying to bring in new business and towards trying to attract residents by improving quality of life and getting creative in their use of public space. I can't speak for New York, but here in Seattle, there have been streets blocked off for traffic, and the space was converted into outdoor seating areas for restaurants that were struggling to survive the pandemic. Some forward-thinking communities are considering making those changes permanent and creating something that's somewhat reminiscent of the plaza culture in Europe.
0: Yes, that's also happening in New York. Uh, Outdoor dining is a big thing here. There are fewer vehicles, it seems. Uh, There's a more pedestrian-friendly ethic and less primacy for parking. And those are all good things. The question is whether they will linger. Do you have any sense of whether those changes will
1: last? Well, the experts disagree. So the hard fact about this question is that there's no clear signal saying this is where we're headed. Like the, the data points in different directions. Right. My best read on the situation is about the optimists and the pessimists are making educated guesses, you know, and I don't fault them. That's what their job is to make educated guesses. But it doesn't seem like anyone knows for sure what will happen to municipal revenue over the long term. It could go down. It could go up or it could stay the same. And there's a complex tangle of factors that will ultimately determine where we end up. My guess is that the world probably won't end in either scenario. If local revenue sources dry up, in the long run, cities will find new ways of generating revenue. They'll rely less on wage taxes and possibly more on residential property taxes. They might invest in cultural or entertainment attractions to bring in tourism dollars, or maybe do something stupid like open a casino. (laughs) I imagine that life will go on, more or less. There are some experts who think that the effects of this pandemic will be short-lived. Some researchers have pointed out the improvements in transport and telecommunications capacity in the past has always been associated with ever greater urbanization. So why would it be different this time around? Those experts are predicting that the current wave, work from home and flight from the cities, will reverse in time and that we'll all just flock into dense urban centers. And there's a very persuasive belief in the business world that collaboration and innovation depend on face-to-face interaction. The thinking goes that we can do some of our work remotely, and maybe we can even do most of it, but unless we get everyone in the same room on a regular basis, productivity will take a nosedive. Silicon Valley, for instance, evolved into a world-changing economic engine because there were a lot of tech people already living in the same area who had been working for companies like Hewlett-Packard, and so they were able to get together formally and informally to exchange ideas and found new businesses. Yes. There was enough money in the community to found these new businesses, and there were enough smart people to turn some of those businesses into successful enterprises that attracted more talented people, some of whom would later go on to form their own companies with friends or coworkers. A lot of the economic value of the big, dense city is that there are so many people there, and information can flow rapidly and in unexpected directions. By this way of thinking, the businesses that are insisting everyone will return to the office as Tesla did recently by way of a tweet from Elon Musk, should perform better than the remote businesses. If that happens, sooner or later, we'll all be back to working from our desks and living within driving or walking distance of our jobs. That could be our future, and it would be pretty similar to our present. However, if this is your fond hope, there is one inconvenient fact to consider. Cities were already shrinking even before the pandemic. Cities of more than 1 million residents saw their growth slow in the middle of the last decade and several experienced population losses. Before we'd even heard about COVID-19, urban population was already dispersing into smaller cities and suburbs. So what does my crystal ball have to say about the future of America's big cities? This is a hard question to answer since the experts do disagree and there are so many factors coming into play, but I'll take a swing at it. All right. Personally, I don't think the big city is going away. There are enough benefits to living in a city that never sleeps that plenty of people will choose to live in such places. I expect most businesses to disperse, but they want to maintain a headquarters in key communities, smaller than their headquarters before, but it will still be there. Their employees will be on teams comprised of people who live all over the country, and two or three times per year, everyone will fly in to spend some time together. I expect a reduced demand for office space in city centers, but the demand will not evaporate. There will be surplus properties that will probably be converted into condominiums. And I'd like to think that this increase in supply would result in a lower price, but experience indicates otherwise. Investors will buy up the new product and housing prices will remain unaffordable. Fewer workers in the city will mean fewer restaurants, fewer shops, and fewer people working low-wage jobs in support of that office population. This could be a crisis for those low-wage workers, but that's a subject for another podcast. Meanwhile, I expect social scarring to eventually heal and tourists to pour into cities like New York to take in a Broadway show and visit the Statue of Liberty. Well, here in Seattle, they'll be in Pike Place Market taking pictures of those guys who throw fish around for no reason that I've ever understood. (laughs) In short, our lives would be about 95% of what they were before COVID affected by the pandemic, certainly, but not transformed by it. What do you think?
0: Well, I hope you're right, but I'm not as optimistic as you are. I have a few thoughts I want to share with you. One is to something you said very near the end that you don't think cities are going to go away. Maybe my question was inelegantly worded, but my fear is not that cities will go away. It's that they'll no longer be the engines of economic innovation and the magnets for culture that they are now Mm -hmm. because of the disinvestment, the, the chronic lack of money that is exacerbated by the pandemic and the, you know, the tax base not returning is just going to make cities even less able to cope on a day to day basis. That's my fear. Right. But beyond that, uh, I want to say a couple of things on points you made earlier. When you were talking about potentially office space being converted to residential, you know, that's a dream that a lot of urban planners and progressives had have had for decades going back way before the pandemic but there are some structural difficulties with that that i think we touched on in our housing podcast the many many regulations that guide where you can work where you can live and never the twain shall meet you know right. the the zoning codes in many cities that separate business districts from residential districts. And there was a good reason why zoning codes kept the manufacturing away from the residential for many decades. And that's because Industrial pollution was a real factor back in the day. You know, when everybody was working at the local plant was belching out black smoke and uh, all kinds of harmful toxins and carcinogens. It was dangerous to live near the plant. Um, but I think there's been so many innovations technologically and with regard to environmental protection, that that situation really doesn't exist to the same extent. So I I guess this is my argument for modifying some of the strict zoning codes and housing regulations so that some of those empty office towers can be converted to lofts or or whatever.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the nature of work has totally changed. I mean, the It's a little overstated, but we are living to a large extent in a knowledge economy nowadays. And knowledge, uh, one benefit of the knowledge economy is it doesn't require smokestacks. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It doesn't pollute our groundwater. Just to give people a vivid example of the sort of thing that we're talking about, here in Seattle, one thing you can see from outside my window is a park that's right off of Lake Union. It's called Gasworks Park. And it's a nice little space where people go to flake heights and that sort of thing. And Gasworks Park is called Gasworks because it used to be the home of a chemical treatment plant. And the soil there remains so toxic to this day that nothing except for grass will grow on it because grass Mm -hmm. only sends its roots down like maybe an inch into the soil, and anything that goes deeper than that will be poisoned by the the lingering toxicity of the soil. And so that was the sort of thing that ringed Seattle when it was still small enough that what is now just off of downtown was on the outside ring of the city, that work then was the sort of thing that would kill you if you lived next door to it. Now work is different, now, and so there's no particular reason to think that work and home need to be separated that way.
0: Correct. And our regulations haven't caught up with that yet, which is not, not at all surprising, but maybe we can use this post-pandemic moment to renew our efforts to change some of those regulations so that right, right. office towers can become housing, and yeah. affordable housing at that, maybe, if we're mm-hmm. lucky.
1: Yeah. Fingers crossed.
0: Yeah. And let's not hold our breaths either. Um, I wanted to mention one other thing when you were talking about just the general idea of people going back into the office. My perception is that that's going to take some leadership on the behalf of uh, our business leaders. That I'm troubled by kind of like the wait and see attitude of a lot of big businesses. I think Apple has this policy, you know, we're like, we're not going to make any changes. We're just going to wait and see how this plays out. And we're not going to send our employees back to the office until, you know, I, 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 to use that term you raised, social scarring, I, I suspect social scarring has a lot to do with that attitude. And that's a, that's an attitude that's counterproductive in my opinion. I think we need business leaders, uh, the, our bosses, you know, to step up and say, okay, folks, it's time to start going back to the office. Nobody's expecting you to go back five days a week. You you still want to be off on Mondays and Fridays like most of us, that's fine, but let's find a hybrid schedule that works, but get your asses back into the office. That's what I think needs to happen. There are some companies like Tesla who have mandated that, and I know there are a lot of law firms and other corporate situations in New York City where that's happened. Uh, there are people in the, in the skyscraper I work in. Many businesses have returned to something that looks like normal to me from the outside, but many, many places have not returned. And I don't, th- at some point, social scarring, we can't let that overwhelm us. We can't be afraid to live again, you know?
1: Yeah. I think businesses have to, have to take that really carefully. Um, I was added business. There were some real messaging problems there because in the heart of the pandemic, the message from on high was uh, everyone's doing so great working from home that this is going to be part of our culture going forward, just sort of flexible work. And then um, the CEO changed his mind and said, okay, to collaborate, we need to be in the same space together so everyone back into the office. And there was a huge hue and cry because this this is a large company – not everyone was vaccinated. The desks are very close together. And people were concerned, you know, partly because of social scarring, but also because of legitimate concerns that they would end up sitting next to someone who might not be vaccinated and could be a carrier. So the way that was rolled out, I know had some, some negative effects, and they need to think that through carefully. Like, what is a way of communicating and enacting this that your top priority is very clearly the welfare of your employees and doing that and not you know your share price or whatever it is yes and then another concern which i've heard raised here and there which i think is a really legitimate one is if it's hybrid work and it's let's say it's 2 days a week and you can come in more often if you want to is there going to be any unconscious advantage in terms of career development to the employees who are there in the office versus the employees who are not uh, like, does FaceTime with a higher up mean that you can get that promotion? Whereas the person who might even be better at that job, but who is not in the office that day doesn't get the promotion. And I think companies really need to think through how do we enact a hybrid schedule so that we're not, we're not sort of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, privileging the employees who choose to come in five days a week versus the ones who are actually following the policy that we've articulated.
0: Right. Okay. Point well taken. And that last point in particular, it was already an issue before COVID because women who would say, uh, go on maternity leave or take some time off to have a baby would, uh, often lose out on promotions and be paid less as a result of not having that FaceTime you referenced. But I feel like there's a happy medium here, you know, just uh, let me tell you this story. So, uh, I play on a company softball team that, um, has back on the field now. And it's the only time I see these colleagues is when we play softball and occasionally we go out for a beer afterwards. And I was speaking to one of the women who joined the team this year. She's a new employee who was hired a few months ago. And, uh, she basically said, I have not seen anybody you know other than the day i came in to interview you know, i have not seen anybody who i work with as supposedly work with every day the only people i've seen in the flesh who are employees of this company are my fellow softball players yeah. and that's why i joined the softball team so i could have some human interaction and start to learn who the other people who who work for this company are yeah. and that's a really sad state you know, when when that's the case, there's something wrong with that, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a benefit to work from home. Like, you'd have to commute. Like, your commute is pretty easy. You walk to work, right?
0: That's correct, yes.
1: I have had commutes in the past, not my most recent job, but I have had commutes in the past where it took me an hour and a half to get to work every single day. And so, three hours of every day was sitting on a bus. And, you know, that kind of sucked. That was not a good use of those three hours per day. Right. So work from home has obvious benefits, but it also has a cost, like you said, the human cost of just not talking to people and the collaboration cost of not having the informal off-the-cuff conversations where maybe you raise something that's just sort of in the back of your mind that you wouldn't have brought up in a meeting because it's just a half-formed idea and you're still playing with it. Right. So there are definitely benefits to -to face-to-face. I have been interviewing for jobs that are remote only. And it's always a question for me. If you're thinking that I'm going to work from home every single day, how is it that we are going to do this job as effectively as I know you want it to be done? Right. And I think there are unanswered questions there for those companies that are going that direction. But to circle back to something you said earlier, I think cities, there's sort of a plus and a minus to density um, the, the plus to density is the cultural ferment and the, the ideas and innovation that goes on there, the economic engine that you reference. But there's also a downside to density. And one of the downsides is uh, severe competition for every job that's coming up or competition for housing that drives the price up. And also one downside that we all experienced is that it's a great place for disease to spread. And that's kind of inescapable and particularly as pandemics become more common as density is spreading globally it's something that people need to confront and it's sort of a like where do we find the happy medium between the density that provides us with the things we want and protect ourselves from the risk that density sometimes represents
0: yep i hear you
1: so did i answer your question
0: yes you did I think you're a little more bullish on the city's ability to come back from this than I am, but things do seem to be on the rebound this year in particular. Not so much last year, but this year I am seeing more crowds on the street and more of the eateries populated with foot traffic on, you know, on the avenues where the restaurants are. And I just hope that continues because We lose something significant if we lose our city's ability to be those engines of economic activity. And, you know, all these little seemingly logical decisions we make at home about how we're not going to go back to the office or not going to come in today, you know, for because I'm afraid of getting COVID. Those have those have consequences. All those individual actions, which might be well-meaning and logical, end up devastating cities. And as a lover of cities, I don't want to see that happen. So I hope your your take on this proves to be correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So are you ready for your question for next time?
0: Yeah. Go for
1: it. So my question for our next episode is both simple and complex. Why do we laugh? Laughter, when you think about it, is a pretty big physiological response. There's an involuntary expulsion of air. It can be pretty loud. It involves our entire bodies to the extent that laughing really hard can make tears flow down your face while you struggle to breathe. And my question for all of this is why? Why as a species have we evolved into creatures that laugh? I spent a lot of time in college laughing with you, Joe. So I'm hoping you can tell me why.
0: (laughs) Isn't it because of my brilliant wit? <laughs> no. Isn't I, that the answer?
1: Yeah, well it's the first first thing I wrote out. No, it is not.
0: Okay. <laughs> Probably a good choice. Yeah. Okay, that's uh, another arcane rabbit hole infested question from Mark, <laughs> but um I think it'll be it'll they always prove to be interesting in the end. So I will I will go for this one and uh Yeah. I'm already imagining some little interludes of stand-up comedy in between so we can punctuate our learning with some laughter. Okay, so. I look forward to it. Okay, folks, uh, if you have any thoughts about this episode of Mansplaining or you want to comment on this episode or any other episode of the podcast, we ask you to go to our Facebook page, Mansplaining the Podcast, we love it if you like us there on Facebook, check our sources, you can leave a comment or a question about what you heard, and you can also suggest topics for future episodes by leaving us a comment at that page. We welcome your comments, we appreciate your feedback, and uh, hope that you care enough about this podcast that you will share that information with us. We also love to grow our audience, and the best way to do that is for you to give us a rating or write a review on whatever app you use to listen to this podcast. So if you haven't done that yet, please do. But that's it for now. I'm Joe. That was Mark, and we'll talk to you next time.
1: See you then. That's it for this edition of Mansplaining. Mansplaining is brought to you by Joe and Mark and nobody else. Thank you for hanging out with us for a little bit, and we'll see you next time.